Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. My parents are here this morning, uh, which is not very common. Uh, They surprised me, and some of you may be surprised, too, to know that I do, in fact, have parents. Uh, But they are here in the flesh. They are not paid actors. So uh, greet them and say hello to them before you leave today. Now, today is the third of four Sundays in the book of Job. And in week one, we gained an understanding of Job and his situation. The situation is this. God allows Satan to cause great havoc in Job's life, even though Job was the most righteous man around and did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Job's children, his servants, his wealth are all taken away in a single day. He's afflicted with a horrific skin disease, so bad that his wife suggests that he curse God and die. But even after all the sufferings that Job faces, he refuses to curse God. He doesn't know why this has all happened to him. He couldn't see behind the scenes in heaven. But Job still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan was wrong, God was right, and Job really is righteous. End of the story, right? Well, not exactly. Today we move ahead in the book, namely to the middle 35-ish chapters of the book of Job. So far we've introduced five big themes of this book. Number one, righteous people suffer. Number two, Satan causes havoc. Number three, God is sovereign. Number four, we don't know everything. And then number five, the proper response to suffering is trust in God. Last week, we wrestled primarily with points two and three. But today, we're going to focus our attention on point number one. Righteous people suffer. Next week, we'll focus on point five. So we've talked a lot about Job. We've talked a lot about God. And we've even talked a lot about Satan. But we shouldn't forget the other figures in the story who also play a very important role. We're talking about Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We'll also talk about a fourth figure who isn't presented as one of Job's friends and has been a source of debate and curiosity for generations. But after we look at these different people, I'm hoping that we'll leave with two big takeaways. One of these takeaways is extremely practical, and the other is much more theological, though no less important. So open up to Job chapter 2, verse 11. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the week-in and week-out reminder that we have of who you are and what you've done for us. Communion is that built-in reminder, and we're thankful for it. But even just Sunday morning in its entirety is a reminder of who you are and of what you've done for us. Sunday morning is a reminder that we belong to you. Sunday morning is a reminder that this is your day, and because of what happened on this day some 2,000 years ago, we can call you our father. We can call each other brother and sister, 
And we can look forward to eternity in your presence. And so, Father, remind us of these basic truths this morning. Remind us of these things as we read your word, as we pray, as we simply have conversations together as a church family. Father, remind us of these things that are true about you and the things that are true about us, that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that you have provided that Savior. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for his faithfulness, for his life, his death, his resurrection, and thank you that he will return. And Father, thank you for your Spirit who lives and works in our hearts and minds, whether we Realize it, recognize it, or not at the time. We know that your spirit is living and active within us, and we thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. We have the joy and privilege of reading, and we thank you for today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, They came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show Job sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, hear of all the tragedy that has struck him, they pack their bags and go for a visit. Now that's a wonderful gesture on their part, isn't it? When someone you care for, someone you respect, is facing immense hardship, it can be incredibly helpful for them to know that they're not alone. So far, so good. Anybody catch that? So far, so good? Okay. Just wanted to draw attention to it. But when these three friends get into town, they don't even recognize Job. The skin disease must have really done a number on him if they couldn't recognize him. But when they realize who he is, they weep with him, they mourn with him, they sit with him. They stay for an entire week, and they don't even say a word to Job. They're simply present. And for someone suffering as much as Job is, that's often the best thing you can do. But sadly, this is the high point of the three friends' appearance in the book of Job. Because as soon as Job speaks in chapter 3, As soon as he truly opens up about the frustration, the anger, the sorrow, the doubt that he feels. As soon as Job talks, these three friends become utterly unhelpful. In chapter 3, Job loudly and graphically wishes that he had never been born. And when he says that, all three friends offer essentially the same two-part response. Part number one from the friends is that suffering is always a result of sin. And Job, you are suffering greatly, so that must mean that you have sinned greatly. That's what the friends are thinking. For example, look at what Eliphaz says in chapter 22, verse 5. He says to Job, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. 
For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. But you have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. By the way, Job hasn't done any of these things. There is no evidence that Job has done any of this stuff. Eliphaz is simply assuming that he must have done this stuff to be suffering the way he is. He continues... Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Pretty simple. Job, if you're suffering so much, you must have sinned greatly. Bildad says in Job chapter 11, verse 6, Know then that God exacts of you less than what your guilt deserves. Job has sinned. That's why he's suffering. Pretty simple, right? Job's friends even throw in a few low blows along the way. They make comments about how the offspring of sinners will perish, and the house of sinners will not stand, which is probably something you shouldn't say to someone whose children were just killed when his house collapsed. But that tells you something about these three friends. Job, you've sinned. That's why you're suffering greatly. That's the only possible explanation. So that's part one of their response. And then here's part two of their response. Job, just repent of your sin. Just admit that you did it. And then everything will get better. That's what Eliphaz argues in chapter 22, verse 21. Job, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of offer among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on all your ways. Job, just repent and everything will be back to normal. Zophar says in chapter 11, verse 13, Job, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hand towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. Think about that line. Lift up your face without blemish. Imagine you're Job and you have a horrific skin disease. And Zophar says, if you repent, you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure. You will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Job, just repent and all this stuff will be water under the bridge. It'll all be fine. Your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like that of the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take rest in your security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. And many will court your favor. So these three friends believe that Job's situation is simple. You've committed some heinous, 
hidden sin, and God is punishing you for it. And Job, if you would just admit it, if you would just repent, then everything will be well. But Job disagrees. He maintains his innocence, insisting that he has done nothing to deserve this. And we know from the beginning of the book that Job is right. God himself described Job as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job is right. He doesn't have some horrible, hidden, heinous sin to repent of. His friends are off base. Now again, Job doesn't claim to be perfect. He's not saying that he is sinless, that he has never done anything wrong. But Job is saying that he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve murdered servants, stolen livestock, a collapsed house, dead children, and a wife who suggested suicide. Job's argument that if, is that if God is punishing Job for his sin, then the punishment simply doesn't fit the crime. But Job's friends don't buy it. They simply cannot grasp the concept that an innocent, righteous person would suffer as much as Job. So Job and his friends argue round and round, back and forth from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 27, basically saying the same thing over and over again. Job finally rejects their arguments in chapters 29 and 31, and we basically don't hear from the friends again. Job sums up his opinion of his friends in chapter 16, verse 2. He says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Miserable comforters are you all. So initially, Job's friends did a good job of comforting him. But then they started talking. Their accusations are false. Their understanding of how God works in the world is wrong. And the diagnosis and cure they offer for Job's predicament are completely off base. So when you finish chapter 31, Job and his friends are at a stalemate. No one is willing to give an inch. There are no more arguments to be made. There's nothing more to say. But then along comes a man named Elihu, speaking in chapters 32 through 37. Elihu is not presented as one of Job's friends, He's a seemingly random bystander who just happened to be listening to these four men argue. Elihu is young, and if you read his words, he comes across as a bit full of himself. He's convinced that he knows the answer that these other people simply couldn't come up with. Elihu's words may be more eloquent than those of the three friends. He may speak a little more wisely than those three do. To the point that some interpreters argue that Elihu is the only wise speaker of the entire book, outside of God. And Job doesn't attempt to argue with Elihu. Elihu is not rebuked by God at the end of the book, the way the three friends will be. But while some of those things may be true, Elihu's words still just don't seem to apply to Job's situation. And they don't provide much of a solution to Job's problem. So there's the four characters we wanted to look at today, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. But we said that we would have two big takeaways 
from this morning in the book of Job, and that one of them would be extremely practical, and the other would be much more theological. So let's start with the practical one. The practical takeaway from this morning is this. Job's friends are an example of how not to comfort the suffering. An example of how not to comfort the suffering. I mean, think about it. One week after Job loses everything, when Job finally works up the courage to be vulnerable, to let his friends in, to speak openly about the anger and doubt and sorrow he's experiencing, as soon as he opens up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar feel the need to correct him, argue with him, insult him, and falsely accuse him of sin. Again, the one shining moment for Job's three friends is when they sit with him, stay with him, grieve with him, and just shut up. That's the best thing they do in the entire story, and it only lasts three verses. Meanwhile, they look like miserable comforters for 23 chapters. They're an example of how not to comfort the suffering. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis recorded how he felt as he mourned the death of his wife of cancer. And he talks about how lots of well-meaning Christians tried to comfort him. They would come to him and say things like, well, she will live in your memory forever. Or they would say, well, she's in God's hands. And they would say that we do not mourn like those who are without hope. That last one being scriptural. But Lewis says that more often than not, even though these people meant well and were trying to comfort him, their words just didn't really help. Because sometimes hurting people don't need our theological wisdom, our pithy sayings, or our hallmark card encouragements. At least not right away. Sometimes the best thing we can do for someone who's hurting The best comfort we can offer them is to simply sit with them, weep with them, stay with them, listen to them, and don't say a word. You know, someday the time will come for theological wisdom and scriptural reminders and maybe even the occasional correction. But first, hurting people need us to listen. They need us to be present and they need us to be patient. So Job's friends are an example of how not to comfort the suffering. That's takeaway number one, the practical one. And now here's takeaway number two. This is the theological one. This is the significantly longer one. So buckle up. But it's also very, very important. Don't overlook this takeaway. Takeaway number two is this. Retribution theology is an insufficient explanation for how God works in our world. Sounds pretty theological, doesn't it? You're wondering what that means? Well, I'm glad you asked. What we mean when we say retribution theology is this. It's very tempting to believe that there is an ironclad rule in our world that everyone gets what they deserve. It's very tempting to believe that righteous people prosper, And sinners suffer. So if you're doing well by worldly standards, 
If you're healthy, if you're wealthy, you're happy, you're successful, then that means you're righteous. You've done something right, and God is clearly rewarding you for it. Meanwhile, conversely, if you're not doing well by worldly standards, you're sick, you're poor, you're grieving, you're suffering, then that means that you're being punished for some hidden sin. You're wicked. The only possible explanation is that you've done something wrong and God is judging you for it. That's why your life is so bad. That's why you're suffering so much. Now, the truth is there can be some biblical reasoning for retribution theology. There are times that God gives people what they deserve in this life. In Deuteronomy, God tells the Israelites that if they obey him, they'll prosper. If they disobey him, they'll suffer. Pretty clear cut. In the book of Judges, when Israel sins, they suffer. And when they repent, their situation improves. In Proverbs, there is passage after passage saying that those who pursue wisdom and righteousness will be rewarded. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul suggests that part of the reason some people in the church were getting sick is because of how they abused the Lord's Supper. So again, this isn't totally foreign to Scripture. But the problem for Job's friends is that they assume that God always works like this. This is how it always works. Righteous people prosper, sinners suffer. That's the way of the world. But as anyone with any experience, anyone with any wisdom will tell you, life isn't always so clear-cut. We know that sometimes the bad guy wins and the good guy loses. Sometimes the criminal gets away. Sometimes the one who does everything right is punished. And sometimes the one who does everything wrong is rewarded. Retribution theology just simply isn't how God works. Jesus made it clear that this neat and tidy view of the world isn't always how God works. In John chapter 9, the disciples assume that a man born blind must have gotten that way because somebody sinned. Either he sinned, his parents sinned, somebody sinned, that's why you were born blind. But Jesus tells them that this man's blindness is not a punishment for sin. Instead, it's in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. In Luke 13, some people asked Jesus if a group of Galileans died as punishment for their sin. And Jesus rejects the idea. The point is clear. Sometimes people don't get what they deserve in this life. Sometimes the wicked prosper, and sometimes the righteous suffer. Just ask Joseph in the book of Genesis. Ask Job. Ask the apostles who led the early church and suffered greatly. Ask the Christian martyrs who have been beheaded or burned at the stake for their faith. Ask Jesus. Sometimes righteous people suffer. Now, before we leave this point, I want to draw your attention to one of the most obvious examples of retribution theology in our world today, and that is known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the idea that if I have enough faith, do all the right things, 
have a positive attitude, say all the magic words, then God will bless me. I'll be healed of my chronic illness. I'll get the promotion I want. I'll never have material needs ever again. I will be a shining example of success. And of course, if it doesn't work out, the problem is with you. You just aren't trying hard enough. You haven't prayed the right prayer. You haven't sent your money to the right televangelist. You haven't bought enough books. Now, why do we fall for this prosperity gospel when both scripture and experience tell us that this isn't how God works? Well, the most obvious attraction of the prosperity gospel is the prosperity. The allure of being healthy and wealthy in this life can cloud our discernment. But the deeper and more hidden attraction of the prosperity gospel is the idea of control. It's the idea that if I just do the right things, if I keep my nose clean, if I take care of my business, then God's going to bless me. I can maybe even twist his arm into giving me the things I want. I can manipulate him. He will answer to me. I'll have everything I want, and I don't have to worry about suffering the way that Job did. But if you're not careful, if you allow the prosperity gospel to take root in your heart, your mind, or your church, you may find yourself guilty of the same sin that Satan accused Job of. Early in the book, Satan argued that Job only loved God because God had put a hedge around him. He said Job only loved God, only worshipped God because of all the things, all the blessings, all the possessions that God had given him. And if you just take those things away, then he won't have reason to worship you anymore. Well, if you are led astray into the prosperity gospel, you may find yourself only obeying, only worshipping, only loving God because of the stuff he's given you or the hope that he's going to give you more. You may find yourself not loving God just because he's God. You may find yourself loving God because of what you want him to give you. Now, in the past, when I've mentioned the prosperity gospel from the pulpit, I haven't named names. That's usually because it feels rude, because it feels like I'm violating some unwritten preaching etiquette. But the more I think about it, the more I think you need to know who these people are. I've gotten to the point where I think the danger of their teaching outweighs my desire to be nice and unoffensive from the pulpit. So while I can't judge these people's hearts, their minds, their motivations, I don't claim to do that. These people honestly might believe that what they're teaching is good and true and helpful. So I can't judge their hearts, I can't judge their minds, I can't judge their motivations, but I can judge the words they preach. I can judge the books they've written, and I can judge the resources they've produced. You know, the prosperity gospel started with a man named Oral Roberts, and then it progressed through a man named Kenneth Copeland. And it still lives on today through people like Benny Hinn, Paula White, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes. The prosperity gospel is a more modern and glamorous version of the mistake that Job's friends made. The mistake that made them miserable comforters to Job when he was suffering. 
The mistake that made them unreliable communicators of who God is and how he works in our world. Again, the point is pretty clear that righteous people suffer. And if anyone ever tells you otherwise, they are oblivious to the way God often works in our world. And they're ignoring numerous scriptural examples. So may we reject their error. And in doing so, may we be better comforters for suffering brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they're out there. And may we be more reliable witnesses to who God is and how he really works in our world. Because, you know, after all, our eternal salvation is built on the truth that God doesn't always give people what they deserve. Our faith is based on one righteous man suffering, while wicked people looked on and mocked him. We don't get what we deserve in eternity, because Christ got what we deserved on the cross. So in this life, may we love, worship, and obey God, because he's God. Not because we think doing so will give us material blessings, or help us avoid pain. As we read today, righteous people suffer. May we comfort them when they do. May we trust God when we do. But in particular, one righteous man suffered, Jesus Christ. And his suffering, his death, and his resurrection show us just how great our God really is. That God deserves our love, God deserves our obedience, God deserves our worship regardless of what our life circumstances may be. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the difficult book of Job that requires us to ask deep questions about ourselves, ask deep questions about you, ask deep questions about our world. And Father, these questions are challenging, but at times it's a good thing for us to be challenged. We can quickly, easily, almost unknowingly fall into error, fall into false understandings of who you are, false understandings of what it means to be your people, false understandings of how you work in our world. And Father, I pray that when we fall into those, that you would gently but firmly correct us, remind us of the truth. And Father, when we suffer, which as Joshua mentioned earlier, is not a question of if, but of when, it's inevitable. Father, I pray that we would trust you, that we would share what Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, that we would understand that Sometimes, even when we don't know the answers, when we don't know everything, when we can't see what you're doing or how you're doing it or why you're doing it, may we trust that, as Jesus said in John 9, that you can take our suffering, that your glory might be displayed through it. And Father, I pray that we would be good comforters for those around us. Again, day in and day out, every Sunday we come in here, there is one of us who's suffering. There is a brother or sister in Christ who is hurting. And I pray that we would be good comforters. 
that we would weep with people, that we would listen to people, that we would sit with people, that we would grieve with people, and maybe not even say a word, but, Father, simply be present for our brothers and sisters in Christ in pain. And again, may we praise you and thank you that you don't always give people what they deserve. If you did always give people what we deserved, we would have no hope in this life or in the next. But Father, thank you for sending your son, the righteous man who suffered on our behalf, died, rose, and ascended, and will return. Father, help us to worship him, to follow him, and to love you. We honor you, we praise you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.